We the City is recorded on Gadigal land. I pay my respects to the traditional custodians, the elders, past, present, and emerging. Just a heads up, this episode contains some adult language. Art. Activism. Identity. Diving deep with one artist a week, we meet the individuals who use their art to trigger change in the city of Sydney. Who are they and what's their story? Stick around to find out on We The City. Hi, I'm Blue Lucene, and in today's episode of We The City, I speak with artist Black Douglas. A proud Dungutty man, Black Douglas is a contemporary artist who works across painting, installation and sculpture. He won the coveted Archibald Prize in 2022 with his portrait of Carla Dickens. His work explores political and social injustice through bright colours, iconic figures and witty sardonic titles. It has captivated audiences around the world for decades. Black talks about pushing the boundaries in the art world and the lessons he's learnt along the way. Here's Black. Thanks for joining me, Black. How are you going? I'm going pretty well. I'm well fed. I'm not banging a desk. (laughs) And I'm going to be speaking fluently on Gadigal land. I just wanted to... Start off by saying I've admired your work for a long time now and I've seen kind of how it's engaged with different parts of the city because I think earlier in your career you were living out at Ashfield, then in Redfern. But I just wanted to kind of take our listeners back to earlier years and I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about where you grew up. I was born in Blacktown, Twin Gagal country, and spent the first years trotting around Prospect and then the new housing estate, the new way of living was built in South Penrith, Western Sydney and that was the most affordable place for my blue collar working class parents. So we fled out there by the time I was seven years of age and I was raised on top of a hill in South Penrith. Uh, Went on to University of Western Sydney there later on and also began painting there. And uh, what kind of kid were you, Black? A little shit. Yeah? Yeah. An only child. And I thought the world revolved around me. And that only became exacerbated when I pursued art because all artists think that the world revolves around them. And um, it didn't help me particularly for some time. But uh, thankfully, I've learned to deal with the fact that the world doesn't revolve around me now. I think that ego would probably be quite helpful, though, for a lot of artists. I mean, you'd need that belief to start painting and continue doing it. So, You know, I just felt like rattling off half a dozen artists right now who (laughs) could probably be dealt a little bit of a measure of um, humble pie. But I shan't for the sake of defamation. Well, today's about you anyway. Yes. So I'd much prefer to just to talk about your yes. own humble pie. You are correct because uh, if you do watch the, and it, this might be a little 
adventurous thing for people to observe. But if you do watch the formative years of an artist that who is evolving, then and particularly in this era of social media and selfiness, mm-hmm. you have to really pump everything you've got into yourself to project yourself to the ether and hope that you lure some kind of representation if you don't already get that representation coming out of art school. Yeah, I feel like uh, it's shifted from the days where someone could just hide in the corner and be discovered and someone kind of do all the work for them. It's, it's much more about kind of pushing your own brand. Hmm. The advantage which I predicted moving to Sydney to Gadigal from Darug, Penrith, was that I saw that the kind of messages that I was projecting in my work was going to be short-lived in a community that is primarily liberal-governed and cottage lane art industry. Mm-hmm. So I got out of there as quick as I could, realising that um, you need to be near the pulse for art, and that is Sydney, of course. And so I followed the bright lights of art into Sydney and... That's what I impress on so many young aspiring artists today that the unfortunate thing is that you need to show your face at openings. When you say kind of the bright lights of art, I'm curious, how did art come into your life? Were you always drawing as a kid? I was always drawing as a kid. My mother's two brothers were famed what they called coach painters of the time, which later was called sign writing, when signs were made by hand. Mm -hmm. And nowadays you'll pay exorbitant prices for that to happen in the advent of vinyl cut lettering off a computer. Uh, So my uncle, the Brown Brothers, were then in the late 70s through the 80s were the most famed sign writers on this continent to the point where uh, when people had lots of money in the 80s, they speedboats were being sent from California to, to my grandmother's house on Blacktown Road Prospect and in would come these, you know, behemoth vessels and they would painstakingly Get apply their artistry. So I grew up watching them do that. Then I watched my closest cousin begin to follow in the same footsteps. And so there was always something artistic and it was always an attraction for me to be at my grandmother's and watch this stuff happening. And so I suspect that technically in my artistic prowess is uh, come through the genealogy from that side of the family. Well, they do talk a lot about um, epigenetics and how it can impact different skills that you've got. I mean, the precision in your kind of practice is is incredible. The line work that you do, um, it's hyper-focused. So I wonder if some of that trickled down. Oh, it absolutely did because when you look at <clears throat> the evolution of my stuff, my particularly my template that is the background for my landscape paintings. Now, I use masking tape to achieve my seven sisters' bands of colour in the sky, seven bands of colours. And um, what's really interesting is to note that my first ever job was uh, assisting a car spray painter at Toyota in Penrith. And I had to mask up so you had to mask up the bits where you didn't want to get spray on them. And I really got off on that. 
like masking is its own art form and it's sadly unrecognised as an art form. So it's amazing that some 40 years or 35 years down the track, uh, it's still an integral part of my, the way I make the formative stages of my paintings. It was like a, an accidental apprenticeship for you. <laughs> Pretty much. And um, I have to throw in a plug for 3M because not so long ago when I realised I was using so much masking tape, mm -hmm. I could really do with some freebies. Uh -huh. So they're your sponsors. And I emailed 3M and took some couple of months for them to come back and I became the first artist that they sponsored, inverted commas. And it's been um, so helpful that I don't discard the tape. Uh, it's such a valuable asset in my creation and I rather make giant tape balls. And so I'm working on one at the moment that's been going for two years. I have had one previously I, that I sadly discarded, but I'm going to keep going with this tape ball until it's too heavy to lift onto the back of my ute. And then I plan to exhibit it. Uh, why, why shouldn't we create this um, sculptural piece and, and not give it its own light of day? Okay, that I got to see. That's pretty impressive. Before you went to art school, I'm, I'm curious what kind of role um, being Aboriginal played in your childhood? That's a good question. I was blessed with the physical appearance of not having to identify and not being targeted. But that all changed when other students saw my dad dropping me off at school. And for the rest of the day, um, you were slandered and, you know, ridiculed and um, told that your dad was an abo. And the most embarrassing time was watching something in history or science. Most likely it was in science when um, you chanced upon some archival ethnographic video that was taking in the turn of the century in the oh, desert yikes. of of some Pindaby men dancing with these amazing feathered hats and whatnot and um, some fuckwit would just point and say, oh, there's your dad, mm. Hilly. And um, so uh, there were several other Aboriginal students in my school and... Um, it was just still a time when you pretended that you weren't. So uh, it's amazing having an opportunity down the track, which many of my Bogan mates in the, in the Western suburbs still uh, harass me about. And they say, when we knew you as a kid in school, you were white. But then something happened. And, um, and that was a fork in the road at university when the auntie that was looking after us uh, actually accosted me and said, you've reached a fork in the road, you so you need to now. choose which way you go. Wow. And um, Dad could never really understand that. And when he started seeing my artworks, he'd raise an eyebrow and would say, I, I don't understand why you're digging up this stuff. Like, you know, he thought that he'd successfully made it through most of his life Um not having to, but it was always the case. It was always Black Bob or, you know, other 
slightly derogatory references to to dad in the time where Italians were called dagos and Chinese were called something else and and it was just you just took it on the chin but it did hurt and then, and I still remember in year 4 in primary school Matella Road Public School in Tungabi this white-haired blue-eyed young lad like year 4 we're talking and and he called me an abo and I was so proud that I'd learned to uh, modernise my weaponry mm-hmm. or I, I used a, um, an impromptu modern measure of attack and that was, um, if anybody is old enough to remember, the, the teacher always had the pencil sharpener on the desk, mm-hmm. on mounted on Yeah, right at the front. Yeah, mm-hmm. and used to use these grey, like heavy lead pencils and they were like heavy in... Um, um, in the the grade of the pencil, and they were quite large in diameter, really. And so I, um, I just very kind of nonchalantly got up and walked down to the sharpener and sharpened my pencil so sharp. Came back and sat down and just stabbed him in the chin, and the lead broke off into his chin. Oh wow! And I distinctly remember that primary school teacher uh, upending my desk and. And swinging me around the room, um, then letting me go, and then saying, "Get to the principal's office." Wow! And when I think back now, that's uh, what I'm telling students in schools today when I'm talking about addressing the issue, the abhorrent issues of being the highest incarcerated rate on the planet uh, per capita. That has always happened to the black man. Yeah. And so there's always been some kind of challenge and the white man gets off scot-free and the black man gets... um, The punishment. Yeah. And so there was my very first ever introduction. What would transpire or evolve into watching my dad later on fight his way out of just about every pub that he drank in at the end of the night because the white fellows would get charged up and want to punch on with a black guy. And so dad would be out in the laneway cleaning up these white fellows and then the police would turn up and throw the black guy into the paddy wagon. You and your dad have grown up in such different Australias in a way. Um, I mean, it's no wonder that you have different points of view in terms of what, you know, being Aboriginal should mean to you. Um, When you were saying just before about, you know, he's saying, why bring this up? And, you know, it's a completely different way of coming at it for you. For mm. you, it's – what did that kind of – I think you graduated art school 1994, around then? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And during that time you really started exploring what your heritage meant. W- was that difficult kind of emotionally? What was the – what did that feel like at the time? That was a period where – you thought you controlled the world, you know, like around 25. You're bulletproof, um, everything's about you and nothing else really matters. So uh, I was just str- like bolting forth like Usain Bolt literally and in my life. And it wasn't until many years later that the reality of what had happened to our family hit home and so there was, you know, 1994 was the graduation year from UWS and um, 
And then I was just like completely wide-eyed and attracted to the next opportunity to become involved in First Nations cultures and that arrived with a, a massive golden pot at the end of the rainbow and that was getting employed as the graphic designer for Indigenous Australians exhibition at the Australian Museum. And you couldn't have asked for a more uh, whirlwind introduction to First Nations peoples of this continent. It was just so diverse and completely blew me away. And it was like um, I just kept getting fueled every time. I, I couldn't wait to get in there to see what would happen next at work. And when I came out of there after a 15-month contract, I thought I was just it. And um, I, I felt I could walk into any Aboriginal community on this continent and I'd just know my way and I'd feel my way. And I tried it. I did try it afterwards. And um, turns out it worked. Oh, cool. Yeah. Northeast Arnhem Land, Papunya, Perth, and just went into different communities and said, I'm Adam Hill, as I was then. And um, I'm, um, I'm Corey from the East Coast, and I don't really even know who my family actually are, but my dad's blackfella. <laughs> <laughs> so that felt uh, like I was a superhero. I was a reincarnated super boom. <laughs> I want to kind of talk about moving to Redfern and I'm curious how that landscape, how being in that area impacted your practice. I moved to Redfern roughly 12 years ago, primarily because there I was forging my way as a political artist, uh, an artist propagating um, social justice issues through Paintings. Yeah, because politics has always been running through your work. Always. And it was a no-brainer not to move there because politics was still so rife in the community and when you wanted to hear the latest, you'd just go to the block. <laughs> and um, there'd either be some kind of protest happening, later there'd be the 10 embassies set up and it was so cool to be uh, near to the ground in that community, well, didn't Dad raise his eyebrows? His eyebrows nearly went off the top of his head <laughs> when I decided to move to Redfern. Really? And um, and I just loved it. But you know what? It was still rough. It was still a rough place to live and it was still questionable for somebody like me with my shade of skin because I wasn't known to the community. Like the block was a hard place to walk through. That's why it's so hard to look at it now. It's yeah. become this like house of cards kind of um, Dicorp orgy uh, of faux architecture. And so that's what's so hurtful for blackfellas that were from Redfern and the three generations that missed out on housing there. To walk through there now, it's not an Aboriginal precinct. It's, it's like, honestly, wake up. It, that place hasn't felt black since, well, literally since certain entities turned off the water and the gas to the remnant terrace houses there. So... However, I got, I, I milked it, everything, and I, I just loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. And I still think of um, the, the spiritual gatekeeper who used to stand at the top of the block, and that was Uncle Ningana. And Ningana, bless him, as he's deceased for many years now, um, he was just this most entertaining. He was like the Benelong of the block. 
literally. Anybody who drove, who tried to come into that block, he would greet them, he would just um, address them and say, you know, welcome them and all of that. And so much so that he would then appointed the unofficial gatekeeper of the block. So when, you know, Prince Harry lobbed up, he'd have to speak to Ninganar and the Governor-General or whatever events were happening there and wow. it was such special times. You painted the Community Centre mural in Redfern. What did that mean to you, getting to do that at the time? When I painted that mural, it was literally on the tail end of the hard ed- hardcore um, element of the block. So when they built that community centre and they launched that community centre and they had already raised both sides of terrace houses on the centre part of the block and it left a big grassy patch. And so they used to set up stages in the middle of that and put a marquee up and have everyone there. The day they launched that, Marie Bashir was Governor-General at that time and it's one of those amazing things that whitefellas are so good at pulling the wool over blackfellas' eyes uh, in the sense that in government and, and that is that, you know, we want to um, we want to help blackfellas effectively be homogenised into the CBD community by creating a Redfern community centre that is for the Redfern community. And while this uh, launch was taking place, there's an uncle, Eric, who was sitting up the back and he's long gone from the block, but he was a long-term resident in that block. And he's um, sitting up the black, up the black, and he's yelling at them as they're speaking, even the Governor General, saying, um, it's not a black thing, it's a fucking white thing now. And he's just, and people saying, oh, uncle, you know, tone it down. He goes, no. Nah. He goes, the kids are being told to get out of the centre because the kids are running amok with this new amazing building and they just, and prior to that building being built, those kids could run amok anywhere they wanted within that four hectare precinct because it was Aboriginal land. And um, if you mucked up too much, you'd be dealt the wrath of the elders. But now the homogenising began with the Redfern Community Centre. And I just saw those elders shaking their heads continually when all of a sudden you've got Tai Chi and all of these things taking place. I was like, what the fuck is that? It's not Aboriginal. Yeah. That's not Aboriginal. And so it was, a, it was a valid point, you know. But And when I was painting that mural, the reason why I stylized the clouds in the mural into bomber vans, which are um, police paddy wagons, mm-hmm. because they were driving up and down every five minutes. Wow. They were always looking for someone wow. or just I- impressing their presence, you know. And there were people shooting up in the doorways opposite as I was painting and uh, it was just an amazing rapid crossover transition of, for that place. Now you mentioned the, the paddy wagons um, kind of brought into your art, the symbolism. That's something you can find in, in all your works. There's, there's so many layers for me in terms of the different meanings. You've got kind of the punch in the face messages that are really bold and and right there for you to see. And then there's um, more subtle things that kind of reoccur in a lot of your your works. You mentioned the the Seven Sisters before. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and why it's a part of your practice? There was something always eating away inside and that was my grandmother Mm -hmm. and that was 
her parents and the parents beyond that and for however far you want to go back in our 8,000-year existence in Southwest Rocks and Kempsey. And um, that's the thing when, when you talk about dealing with uh, generational trauma in Aboriginal people, um, it doesn't matter if your offspring has got red hair, green eyes and freckles, but their great-great-grandparent was black. Well, they're going to be carrying that no doubt unforeseen macabre existence or the demise of that grandparent, that great-grandparent, and that um, unconsciously uh, channels through in people's spirit. So um, back to what I was saying earlier about the, the spearing with the pencil and the black man fighting his way out of the pub, when you know that there's no there's a snowflake's chance in hell of you getting a fair trial in this country, you may as well just punch someone in the face. And so it feels good. It feels good any time anybody's called a name to punch somebody in the face. And um, you're going to get fined or you're going to get a, a record or you might even go to jail depending on your previous punching in the face encounters. And that's why our incarceration rate is so high. So that trauma is carrying through and it's going to, it's going to react. It's going to take something to react or to uh, enact, trigger that trauma. And it depends on the individual, how that individual can handle themselves. So for me, uh, what I try and impress on, particularly on the odd occasion if I go inside and work with the brothers in, in jail or, or the kids in the detention centres, you know, try and take it out on the canvas. Don't put it on the wall because they're looking for an excuse to lock you up. If you tag a wall, you're going to get locked up or at least harassed by the cops. So... Um, um, I feel my responsibility now coming full circle as a as an artist is to try and pave the way for for those kids to have a a voice and paint what they want to paint. It's uh, taken a, a long time to to make a dent in this establishment, but it's slowly but surely happening. And I've certainly tapped into key figures in art nowadays that non-Indigenous key figures that are willing to help me make that happen. And so is a part of um, what you put in your paintings sometimes just for you as well, not always for the audience, if there's subtleties that other people might not pick up on? I generally kind of hone in on something topical of in the now mm -hmm. and something, and it's always fueled by a farcical government uh, circus act that is a continuation of... Um, those clowns that are running this place. You've got some really iconic pieces, like the Catter Grill, Bob Catter and the Cattle Grill work. One of your most recent works, um, Truism Australia. I wanted to talk about that just briefly, actually. So that was a piece where you were responding to a piece of archive. Is that correct? Could you just tell me a little bit about that and... and Describe the photograph. State Archives of New South Wales had recruited me for a group exhibition. Uh, as well, it was artists and poets that was staged at the Museum of Sydney. And they um, initially they sent out a whole swag of archival paintings of Sydney, sorry, New South Wales archival photographs. And we were to respond, we were to pick something and respond. Mm -hmm. to those images. 
And thankfully, um, as soon as I saw the image you're talking about, which was the image of um, three of my brethren, of my kin, standing on the railway station at Kempsey. And how, how old are they in that picture? They, they were like uh, maybe six down to three, the youngest one perhaps. And um, there's the snapshot of the stolen generation. There was the train, the station master, who was uh, pointing down the platform to where they had to go. And there was, um, as I later learned, the female head of the welfare board. And so she was escorting my distant cousins to their so-called new life, which was freshly being stolen from their mother's nest and put on a station and sent off to whatever took place in their lives. And you found out something um, about the youngest boy in that photo. Uh, yeah, direct relative and also um, a member of the family of the, the first superstar artist of Kempsey, which is Robert Campbell Jr. It was just, I was just gobsmacked that I, when I found out this information and, and much of that came to me through social media when I posted that up on Instagram and all these messages started coming in and, and then I dug, for, dug deeper into it and found out that um, they were actually related. So did you discover that he was, I think, a, an uncle? Yeah. Did you discover that after you'd finished the painting? Yes. Wow. So, and so you I, painted the whole thing yeah. and then discovered that yeah. the little boy you were, in fact, painting yeah. one of them. Yeah. To be honest, I didn't actually know that that was Kempsey Railway Station. Um, I thought it was central. Yeah. And then to modify the background, so the whole thing was painted with um, the illusion of a new life and the illusion being the great landmarks of Gadigal country now being the the Opera House, the Harbour Bridge and Sydney Tower. And so they were all kind of produced as a just as white outline Mm. So it was this um, kind of spiritual Disneyland fantasia world that those kids are being marched into. And you had some um, some play on words with the with Luna Park, didn't you? Some messaging in there. What did you What did you rename that? Oh, lunatics. Yeah. Yeah. So I changed yeah Luna, Luna Park to lunatics, and um, and tourism Australia is a play on tourism Australia. Yeah, it's an honourable, honourable thing to have them acquire the piece and the initial commission, and it's all part of um, finding the good people that are that do exist within the establishment that want to make the change. I mean, you're talking about this photograph. It is a an exact snapshot, right, of of the stolen generation, and it's so fresh. It's so recent. It's and it's quite incredible that you discovered that about your family, kind of after being involved in this process. Yeah. Um, it's what had taken place prior to uh, orchestrating that composition was that um, I developed a relationship with the State Archives. And when Dad was still alive, so we're talking some decade ago, they had contacted me because I had a documentary made about my <clears throat> emerging into art 
So that was uh, was made around 2004. Documentary titled Between the Lines, The Initiation of Adam Hill. It got a lot of airplay. It was uh, regularly played on NITV. So uh, the archives saw that documentary and contacted me and said that they'd found some archival photographs of my grandmother. And so I took Dad down. They give you a morning tea. They used to be down at the rocks. And we went down to the archives there and sat down and there were these six photographs of my grandmother that Dad never knew existed. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty astonishing. And to see a Dad tear up in the, in the context of things is incredibly uh, emotive thing. And then uh, and Dad passed... Um, but that 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 fueled my my frustration even more to want to call out because we're talking if if non-indigenous Australians can appreciate and some might have had some experience, similar experiences, but in the scheme of that, we're now in an era where uh, a welcome to country is um, omnipresent and mandatory in most places as is NAIDOC celebrations in the first week of July and flag raising and all of this stuff. It's incredibly impacting to know that we're trying to make this change, but the government has a legislature that says that somebody like me is not entitled to a native title claim. So somebody like me that is is two generations removed from a grandmother who was picked up by the black government car from Jerseyville and Kempsey and sent miles away to Cootamundra Girls' home to serve as a slave for white station owners. I can't, according to the federal government's laws, claim for an allotment of land from where my grandmother was taken from. And that's because that native title law says that it's only available to the tribal people. So people that can prove continued connection ceremonially to their land. The clever device was for the southeast region in the height of colonisation and the white Australia policy was to break down the family mm-hmm. and obviously move the people on from their homeland and then um, job's done. Job's done. And now you can only apply for um, stolen generation claims if you're the person that was stolen or the next of kin. That's the federal government law. So what I'm saying is that this is just bullshit and how dare they expect me to pay my taxes, to pay my tolls on now privately owned roads on Aboriginal land and pay my parking fines, yet you haven't compensated my family in any way for what you did to my grandmother. That's the fire that's burning in the belly and that's why it's so easy to wake up and paint something in contrast to many dealers who say, can't you paint something nice and dotty? (laughs) I think that's one of the things I really admire and I know a lot of other people admire about your work is that there's no niceties. You, you, You punch in the face with your with your art. One thing that isn't celebrated enough is just tenacity and not being afraid to say what you're really thinking. Because there's so much 
these days try not to hurt people's feelings and really you just need to say the truth. You also incorporate dance and music uh, into into those spaces. Can you tell me a little bit about why that's important and what that kind of does for you as well in your practice? I wanted to have some kind of adherence to ceremonial practice and if that is as simple as getting any number of dancers that I know to come and perform at my opening, uh, then I just always thought that that's what should be done. By and large, I've been exhibiting for 25 years now on other people's land and um, the least I can do is have is try to please everybody uh, in attendance and often there are elders in attendance and everybody loves to see some kind of ceremonial dance practised in the flesh. So I just thought that was part of what I should be doing. You know, I remember when I was learning to play didgeridoo and getting my first invited gigs, it's such a proud moment. So it's, it's my responsibility to nurture and, and promote the younger generation who dance better than I do <laughs> or than I ever did. So come and dance at my opening and we have a modern day corroboree and I've always tried to um, to make that happen. To the to more recently at Nanda Hobbs in December with my first re-entry show in about 10 years with a commercial gallery. But now times have changed as such that I got the incredibly vivacious Felicia Fox to come and strut her stuff at my opening. So it's a times of change. I did have a Torres Strait Island mob come, but for my Aboriginal component, I wanted a drag queen. And so I'll continue to do that if possible, if I can still afford her. <laughs> <laughs> Just mentioning your grandmother before, it, it's it's such a kind of incredible and complex journey that you've been on in your practice, your identity, coming to terms with things, especially with at times clashing with your dad's point of view. Have you ever thought about what your grandmother would feel if she was watching you make your political statements, you know, explore your kind of heritage and your identity without, you know, threats and things like that? How do you think that would make her feel? I have wondered that, but I also wonder about how she was in the epicentre of that era Mm -hmm. where you said you were Indian. Yeah, Anything but Aboriginal. Anything but Aboriginal. And she was fair-skinned as well. So she had that opportunity to easily escape and live uh, an evolving lifestyle of assimilation. And it's her mother or her grandfather that I think most about. Mm -hmm. Because her mother and grandfather, uh, her grandmother and grandfather, were, were the ones that stepped out of the bush that stepped out of a tribal lifestyle. And that's phenomenal to think about that. And then the ones before that, absolute unmolested Dangadi tribal people. That's a phenomenal thing to think about. So I do think that perhaps it's that mob that uh, uh, if ever I think about watering down my message like I had to do to get a painting into the National Gallery of Australia some years ago, I might feel a little a polite poke of a spearhead in my in my back, in the small of my back, and just get that little reminder that we're not here to fuck spiders. Yeah. I say that too, but I say I'm not here to pick flowers. 
<laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's because I'm from Penrith. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you, have you ever painted that image? Your well, ancestors. Fucking spiders. No, definitely not that one. Um, the <laughs> your your um, ancestors, you know, emerging from the bush. Has that ever been something? No, not really. You know, when the listening audience look up my stuff, if they are not already familiar with my stuff, you'll see a distinct pattern and a template in the way I paint things, and and that template always came about from um, influences from various great. Western painters that I admired and one particularly being Jeffrey Smart and I always enjoyed how Jeffrey Smart had some kind of landscape happening and then, you know, let's think to that great image of his with the um, the trumpet player in the field or the park, those um, pastel-coloured flats way in the distance in the background. I just loved how he juxtaposed some banality into his compositions. And so that was definitely a big influence on how I now stick something right in the foreground to make a, a comment. It's most often sitting within a landscape that's primarily influenced by Papunya and the, the Sleeping Woman Mountain Range, the McDonald Ranges from my visit to Papunya. When you encounter that landscape for the first time, it's tattooed on your not only your mind, but your psyche. And it became tattooed on my psyche. And why, the reason why I invented my template landscapes was because at the time I was being challenged by the uh, overt plagiarism of the dot style painting from that community to the point where all of the other Aboriginal artists surrounding me when I began painting were painting this kind of stuff on boomerangs, terracotta pots, didgeridoos, whatever. And it's a common tendency because it's the easiest thing to sell. And that's what I alarm the kids in school today, particularly the Koori kids, when I um, beg them to, do, to produce any kind of form of artwork that doesn't have contained dots because it becomes so bastardised and so, so cliché that now we have the most passe dot style graphic ending up on every NRL jersey that they celebrate Indigenous First Nations round or whatever, you know. It's not helping contemporary Aboriginal art evolve and it's not helping anyone really. It's just keeping people in another form of suppression. And in this case, it's artistic suppression. Mm. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you developed your style quite quickly and and just embellished it. And what I see now in your canvases is they're just getting bigger and bigger. They're huge. <laughs> is that what's happening? You just need more space? Uh, you definitely need more space. There's, um, there's a reason for that. And, and you know, you, you dawn upon the realisation at some point in the early stages of your career that bigger is better mm -hmm. and galleries have big walls and they like to have big artworks on big walls. So you may as well fill the space. So you may as well fill the space and you may as well get it, go as large as you physically and economically can, can afford to go. And that can happen. That can always happen. It's just I'm waiting on my invitation from the several institutions on this continent that still won't step up to the plate 
and take on board my messages. Mm. So, but back to the substance of the paintings for the listeners, you know, there's the there's always a big sun or a big moon, which is grandfather, grandmother spirits. Then there's an arid landscape based on Papunya. You'll always see a, a mountain range like the McDonald Ranges. Then there's a big blue sky and then there's a vanishing road uh, or some kind of vanishing path. And and don't forget to add the flat bottom clouds, which are all cryptic metaphors to keep people entertained. But And then you stick something in the foreground and call that a modern Aboriginal painting. But um, it's very hard to push this stuff. They like to pigeonhole. They like to box tick. They like to have their palatable select group of artists that they keep in a family, in a, in a little incubator. It's extremely hard to um, penetrate that control of the gatekeepers that are, are controlling Aboriginal art. It is a matter of time, I hope, for that to all change and to, to have absolute diversity and an absolute appreciation for the artists of the Southeast region being represented in their own major institution as opposed to what is happening with the influx of APY lands art and the desperation that exists for remote region Aboriginal communities in terms of longevity and survival. I think it's incredibly sad that we have to rely on the great artworks coming out of those communities uh, as the saviour for those communities rather than the federal government or the mining companies stepping up as they are going to be held accountable for many years to come to improve the amenities for those communities. And so, you know, how dare they make these these gorgeous senior law women um, slave away on a fucking 20 by 30 metre canvas so the white people at the Art Gallery of New South Wales can toast champagne and celebrate the uh, continuation, in inverted commas, of Aboriginal culture and proper Aboriginal culture. Yes, as long as it fits with their guidelines. I'd certainly like to add that from where I come from, what I've seen, particularly if you go north, you never see a neighbouring language group performing a welcome to country on other people's land. And so that's the difference. That's what differentiates um, bona fide tribalism and cultural law, L-O-R-E, to this melting pot of shenanigans that take place now in Sydney. And I really hope that in my lifetime that I see this change and I see it reverted back to how it really should be. And that is the Aboriginal people from their own place delivering a welcome to country. And um, if that doesn't happen here, then we're not going to have the commensurate change in art that sees that only cultural authoritarians can operate on this land who are from this place. And I'm just I'm just thinking, Black, if there are any, and hopefully there are lots of um, young Indigenous artists listening, what's some words of, of advice that you want to give them? Young Indigenous artists? Um, don't paint dots for a start just because you think it's what's done mm-hmm. and it's what Nana said that you should paint. Think outside the dot. Think outside the dot. And, um, and don't just join the dots. Mm-hmm. And um, you need to dig as far back as you can into your own family's 
um, uh, tribal existence and try and produce something from there. And if that means that um, you want to uh, exhibit bird nests from your tribal homeland as an artwork, do that as opposed to painting dots because um, you're, it might be a tough sell in the early days. It's, it's always tough trying to be an originator and to forge your own style. You can take that from me, but you need to do something, anything other than the tokenistic things that have been done for too long in art here today. What do you see in the future? What are you kind of working towards? I'm working on leaving the sand pit in the in the daycare centre, okay. which I refer to as Australian art, <laughs> and um, taking the training wheels off my little bike that the establishment insists that I keep riding, and I'm going to ride on one wheel, on the back wheel, all the way to New York. Oh, so you're going to do a wheelie or a unicycle? I'm going to do a wheelie all the way wheelie. there. Wheelie, got it. And, um, and I'm going to become the next big thing from Dungadi Nation in New York. Black Douglas, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on here, We the City. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We the City is a Jaboa production, hosted by me, Blue Lucene. The City of Sydney is our principal partner, and we thank the Creative Grants Program. This episode was produced by Blue Lucene and Tegan Nichols, with original music by Matt Cornell. We the City is recorded on Gadigal land. Sovereignty was never ceded.